thank you, Austin, for doing a wonderful job leading us in our singing. Thank you to all of you who are here this morning to worship God. It's been a wonderful day of worship to God. And I want to start this lesson in the same way that I started the first lesson this morning. I want to begin by reading to you some verses from the Word of God. So will you get your Bible out with me, please, and make your way to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5. And I want to read some verses to you from 2 Kings chapter 5. I know this is a lengthy text, but it is important that I read it because I promise you it's going to set up everything we want to talk about in our study from the Word of God. 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valid warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were here, were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aaron said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill to make alive that this man is any word to me? To cure a man of his leprosy, but consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard of the king of Israel tore in his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, he should know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now Naaman came in with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a message to him, saying, Go in the Jordan and wash seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you. And you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out and say to me and, and stand and call the name of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Expectations. Expectations. You ever had any big expectations before? I had some big expectations back in 2015. Back in 2015, when my family visited the wonderful and beautiful state of Arizona for the first time, we drove from Las Vegas to Williams. You ever been to Williams, Arizona before? When we went to Williams, Arizona, we hopped on a train, we rode it up to the South Rim, got out of the train, and we were, we were just blown away. We were absolutely blown away. We were blown away by the sheer majesty and glory and beauty and massiveness of the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon exceeded my expectations. And so it had seen the Rocky Mountains for the first time. And so it had seen Mount Fuji with my own eyes. And so it had seen the Sea of Galilee and the Western Wall in Israel. And so it had seen Niagara Falls earlier this year. I had high expectations before seeing all those things. And those expectations were certainly met, but this man, Naaman, that we read about here in 2 Kings chapter 5, he certainly didn't feel that way upon initially meeting Elisha. Naaman was very disappointed in his initial meeting with Elisha. And so, who is this guy? 
Who is Naaman? Who is this guy named Naaman that we read about here in 2 Kings chapter 5? Well, I want you to notice a few things they were told about Naaman in the first verse of this chapter. First, notice that Naaman is a military man. He's a military man. We have a lot of military men here in this church. Well, Naaman is a military guy. In fact, notice how the Bible says that he is the captain of the army of Aram. Now, now pay a close attention to that language. We've got to understand that when the Bible says he is the captain of the army of Aram here, it's not using the word captain like we use it when we talk about captains in the military today. It's not saying that he's a captain in the army of Aram. It is saying exactly what we read. It means that he is the captain of the army of Aram. He is the top guy. He is the main guy, the top dog. No one is above Naaman. He is over the entire Syrian army. He is first in rank. There is nobody but the king who is over Naaman when it comes to the Syrian army. He's not a captain in the army. He's the captain of the army. He's the captain of the army of Aram, and he's highly respected. He's highly respected by the most important man in Syria. He's respected by the king. The king has respect for Naaman, and he's been blessed by the Lord. Did you notice that? The Lord blessed the Syrian. The text says that the Lord had given him the victory. The Lord had actually given him the victory over his people. Unbeknownst to him, God was using Naaman. God was using Naaman in the Syrian army. He was using the Syrians to wake up Israel and get their attention and lead them to repentance. God was blessing the enemy of his people at this time while at the same time punishing his people. God had given victory to Naaman. And notice how he's described as a valiant warrior. Don't miss that. He's a valiant warrior. That is a big deal. That is a big deal in the ancient world. You see, in the ancient world, among the ancients, respect and glory and admiration from your society was achieved on the battlefield. It was achieved through having courage and fight on the battlefield and being seen as a valiant warrior. Naaman, what I just want you to see according to this first verse in the chapter, is a very successful man. He's a very successful man. I mean, outside of being the king, he has gained every notable achievement in his society. He is the top military official in the kingdom. He has respect from the king. He has respect from his society. He's a valiant warrior. He is someone who has been blessed with many military victories. This man, Naaman, has a lot going on for him in his life, but, and it's a big but, He's got a problem. He's got a really big problem. Yes, he's got a lot going on for his life, but at some point, he got leprosy. This man is a leper. This man has a horrible, flesh-eating skin disease that very slowly and painfully 
killed people. You see, while the people at this time, we're not blessed with all the medical technology that we have in our society today. They still knew it was bad to be a leper. They still knew that leprosy was essentially a death sentence. They knew that leprosy was incurable and it could easily be spread. It was very, very contagious. In fact, among the ancients, they believed that if you had contracted leprosy, that meant that not only did you have a physical problem, but it also meant you had a spiritual problem. It means that you were a bad person. You were a wicked and an evil person. The gods were punishing you because maybe you were a hypocrite. You were doing something evil and wicked in your life. Naaman. Naaman's a leper now. Naaman has got leprosy. He is somebody who, despite being at the top of the ladder in life, he's now at the bottom. He's going to change his lifestyle. He's no longer going to be able to be captain of the army of Aaron. Not anymore. He's no longer going to be highly respected by the people in his society. Many people are going to start viewing him as a wicked sinner. He's harboring some, some evil in his life. He's no longer going to be viewed as a, as a valiant warrior. He's not going to be esteemed. He's not going to be respected. He's not going to be able to do the things that we often take for granted. He's not going to be able to do things like hug and kiss his wife anymore. He's not going to be able to hug and play with his kids and hug his parents and be close to his friends and do the things that he viewed as valuable and important in his daily life. In fact, what Naaman's going to have to do now that he's got leprosy is he's probably going to have to do like all the other lepers had to do at this time. He's going to have to move out. He's got to go. He's got to move out of his home. He's got to move out of his society. He's got to move to a leper colony so he can avoid spreading this disease to other people. Naaman has a miserable existence in his future, but thankfully, there is a little girl in his house who has some good news. Thankfully, verse 2 tells us, that there is a little girl who is a captive from Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife, and upon hearing about her master's condition, she mentions Elisha. She mentions a prophet of God. She mentions a man of God in her country, the land of Israel, that she believed she had faith could cure Naaman of his leprosy. This little girl told Naaman's wife about Elisha the prophet, and evidently Naaman's wife told Naaman about Elisha, and Naaman, who's probably showing at this point, he's probably showing leprosy, that's probably how he got diagnosed with it in the first place. Well, he's excited about that. He finds some hope in that. He finds some hope in the fact that there's actually somebody out there who has a cure for this dreadful disease. The only problem is this guy lives in the wrong place. He lives in the land of the enemy. He lives in Israel. He lives in the place where people were that he had defeated in battle. I mean, if he's going to be able to get to that land safely, well, he's going to need some help. 
If he's going to find Elisha in Israel, he's going to need some help. He's going to need some help from somebody who's above him. He's going to need help from the king. The king's going to have to help him get there safely. And so verse 5 says that the king of Syria made provisions for Naaman to go into Israel. He sent Naaman into Israel with an entourage. And with him, he had a personal letter to the king of Israel, and he had a lot of money, and he had some expensive clothes. You see, since the relationship between these two countries is not very good at this time, the king of Syria hopes that some money and some gifts will soften the king of Israel's heart. He seems to believe that Elijah works for the king. He seems to believe that a prophet of God works for a physical ruler in Israel. He doesn't understand that it doesn't work that way with guys like Elisha. It doesn't work that way with prophets of God. You see, a prophet of God, prophets of God, they didn't work for men. They didn't work for physical kings. Instead, they work for God. They work for the Lord. In fact, the king of Israel at this time, who is King Joram, he is not a servant of the Lord. He doesn't love the Lord. He is a wicked man like his father Ahab, and he clung to the sinful ways of Jeroboam. King Joram is a very wicked man. In fact, upon receiving that letter from the king of Syria, did you notice how he freaked out? He panics. He, he, he gets angry. He foolishly believes that the king of Syria is trying to pick a fight with him because he is demanding something of him that he cannot do. He's like, who am I? I can't get, get rid of this guy's leprosy. He's very suspicious of this letter. But once Elisha learned of the situation, he sent word back to King Joram and he said to him, hey, calm down. Stop tearing your clothes up. Send him to me. Send Naaman to me. Send him to my house and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel, and by extension, that the God of the Israelites is the one true and living God. Elijah says, send this man to me, and they do that. In verse number 9, the Bible says that eventually Naaman shows up, and he's got a huge entourage with him. And Elijah doesn't even come outside to meet him. Did you notice that? That probably got Naaman pretty mad. Because when you a guy like Naaman and you used to people bowing down to you and doing what you tell them to do, and you always get your way. You don't like that. So Naaman already is probably upset. But he's like, OK, who is this guy who doesn't even come out here and talk to me? Do you know who I am? I'm the captain of the army of Aram. You send your servant out here to me. That's very insulting. He's very insulted by that, probably. And so Elijah's like, this guy nothing special to me. He sends his servant out. And the servant comes out and the servant tells him what to do in verse 10 to be healed. He said, this is what you need to do. You want to be healed? You go to the Jordan River and you dip in that river. Not one time, two times, three, four, five, six times. You dip in that river seven times. If you do that, not that you might be cleansed, you will be cleansed. There's your prescription from God. And how did Naaman respond to that? Well, the Bible says he got mad, didn't he? He got furious. He was disappointed. He went away in a rage because he had different expectations. 
he had different expectations. He expected something more amazing to be done to him than having a dip in the Jordan River. He felt that Elisha would have come out and performed a spectacle. He expected Elisha to come out and call on his God, wave his hand over the affected area, and maybe say a few magic words, and then boom, the leprosy was going to be gone. That's what he expected, but he didn't expect this. He didn't expect to be told to go dip in a river seven times. And if he had to go dip in a river seven times, why did it have to be that river? Why did it have to be the dirty, smelly, disgusting Jordan River? Look, I have seen the Jordan River before, okay? I've seen people get baptized in the Jordan River before. And it is dirty, smelly, and disgusting. It's that way today, and it was that way in the time of Naaman. Naaman, he don't want to do this. He don't want to dip in the Jordan River. He would at least rather dip in the cleaner rivers that were in his country. He doesn't like this prescription that comes from the great physician. And so notice what the text goes on to say in verse 13. Just two more verses, please. Verse 13 of 2 Kings 5, after he goes away mad because his expectations are not met. In verse 13 of chapter 5 of 2 Kings, it says... Then his servant came near and spoke to him and said, my father, had the prophet told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then? I mean, if you if you do something hard, how much more then? When he says to you, wash and be clean, how much more will you, should you be able to do something simple? Well, verse 14 says, so he went down. That, that makes some sense. And he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And so notice how, while his initial expectations for being cleansed were not met in the end, his story turns out pretty good, right? Turns out really, really good. He is cleansed. He is healed. He is given his life back, but that is only after he discovers some things about God. And so that's our question. What did Naaman, what did he discover about God? Well, I want to give you four things that Naaman had to discover about God. First, Naaman had to discover that God doesn't bend to the will of man. God doesn't bend to the will of man. Another way we could say that is God doesn't give in to man's desires and man, man's wants and the way men think things ought to be done. Remember Naaman, Naaman is a man of authority. Naaman is the top military man in Syria. He is kind of like a five-star general. He is not used to things not going his way. He's not used to people telling him no. The only person who can tell him no is the king. He's not used to not getting his way. He's used to men bending to his will. Not the other way around, but here he had to learn that when it comes to God, the one true God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who made all things. He doesn't do that. He doesn't bend to the will of men. Men must bend to the will of God. Men must submit to the will of God. They must obey God. That's the only way out of this mess. That's the only way he's going to be healed. That's the only way he's going to be fully restored in his health. And he's going to be able to get back to living his life. Naaman discovers here that God doesn't bend to the will of man. And here's my question. 
Do we need to understand and discover the same thing today? Do we need to discover what Naaman discovered? Do we need, on this morning, do we need to discover that God's way is the best way? God's way is the best way. God's way is the only way that is right and the only path that will lead us to pleasing God. It is the only path that will lead us to pleasing God in our worship. It is the only path that will lead us to pleasing God in the work we do as a church. It is the only path that will lead us to living by a moral standard that pleases God and to salvation and forgiveness of sins that is found through the blood of Jesus Christ. When you go into your Bible, please, to Colossians chapter 3, if you remember in our Bible authority class we did, there was a couple of verses that we like to really emphasize in those studies. And one of them, if you remember, was Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, if you remember verse 17, what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3 verse 17, Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name. Now, the language in the name there means by the authority, by authority, the law knocks on your door, says open up in the name of the law. Open up by the authority of the law. It's the same idea. Whatever you do in word or deed, you do it all in the name, by the authority of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through him to God the Father. Notice how no matter what we do in our lives, no matter what we do as a church, no matter what we do in our worship, no matter what we do in our day-to-day -day lives, the Bible says we got to do it God's way. We got to do it God's way. We got to obey God. We got to submit to God. We got to submit to God in every part of our lives because there are no negotiations with God. God doesn't bend to the will of man. Naaman had to discover that when he got to Israel. But not only did he have to discover that God doesn't bend to the will of man, he also had to learn that God's ways aren't man's ways. God's ways aren't man's ways. You know, upon... Arriving at Elisha's house, if you notice, Naaman kind of has this, has this all worked out in his mind ahead of time. Did you notice that? He, he, he already has a specific way that he believes this thing has to be done. And when he learns God's way, when he learns God's prescription, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to him. It doesn't make sense to Naaman. It doesn't make sense that God... It's going to require him to dip in the filthy, dirty, disgusting, smelly Jordan River. It doesn't make sense that God is going to use the process of getting dirty to make him clean. It doesn't make sense that God's going to heal him through the Jordan River. In Naaman's mind, God's plan, God's way doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But isn't that the way God works throughout the Bible? I mean, isn't that the way we see God working? From Genesis all the way through the New Testament. I mean, think about it. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that God would have built an entire nation to Abraham, a nation that would bring the Messiah into the world? Who would have thought God would have built this nation while they were in slavery? Who would have thought that? Who would have thought that God would have included a Moabite and a harlot? In the family of Jesus, 
Who would have thought that God would have picked some uneducated fishermen and a tax collector and a zealot and a former persecutor of the church to be apostles and preach the gospel and, and, and bring Jews and Gentiles into the kingdom of God? And who would have thought God would have saved us through the process of death? Who would have thought God would have saved us through the process of his son dying on the cross? That goes to what Brother Greg read from this morning, does it not? Remember 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25? We read that this morning. Hopefully you've read that in your Bible reading several times. What's the point Paul is making there? Paul is making the point that God's ways aren't man's ways. He's making the point that while this seems strange and foolish, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people in the world. The gospel message, the message that Paul preached, the message that Peter preached, the message that we preach today, it is about how God gives life through death. It is about how God gives access to spiritual life through the death of his son is about how God demonstrates his great wisdom and love and power to save our souls through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You see, the fact that God provides salvation through the process of his son dying, that is the ultimate example of how God's ways are man's ways. It is a powerful testimony to the wisdom and the power of God. It shows us that God is so amazing and he's so powerful and he's so wise that he can use anything he wants for the good of his people. Naaman discovered that firsthand on this occasion. He discovered that God doesn't bend to the will of man. And God's ways aren't man's ways. And then he also discovered that, hey, I need God. I need God. I need God if I'm going to be healed. Again, Naaman doesn't like this prescription. Naaman doesn't like what God wants him to do. He doesn't agree with this. He leaves the house of Elisha mad and he's angry. But guess what? Anger doesn't take the leprosy away, does it? And you, he's mad. But he also still has leprosy. He also still has this horrible, incurable, flesh-eating disease, and the only person who can help him is God. Only God can help him. Only God can take it away. Only God can completely restore his health. The king of Israel was powerful, but he couldn't do that for Naaman. Naaman's accomplishments, his achievements couldn't do that for him. His money, his wife, his kids, his authority, his position, none of that could take the leprosy away. He is in a helpless situation. He needs God. God's the only one who can help him. There are no other options. There are no alternatives here. God's the only one who can help him. And guess what? That same thing is true with us, is it not? That's true with me and it's true for you, in fact, it's even more so true with us because we have a worse disease than leprosy. We have a disease that not only hurts your body, it hurts your soul. Remember Romans 3.23? What did Paul tell us? Romans 3.23, I know you know the verse, for all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. And so what do we deserve because of that? Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is dead because we've sinned. We deserve something. It's not to go to heaven. It's not to be in a relationship with God. We deserve to be lost. We deserve spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. In fact, in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, Paul puts it this way, that when we're in sin, we are dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, Paul says that those who are in sin deserve eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. In other words, we deserve the wrath of God. We have all been infected by sin. And sin is a far more severe disease than leprosy. Unlike leprosy, which impacts your body, sin impacts what's inside your body. It impacts the soul. It impacts our relationship with God. It severs us from God and it puts us on a path to lose our souls forever in hell. And the only person who can help us is God. It's Jesus. It's not Moses. It's not Confucius. It's not Buddha. It's not Muhammad. It's not Joseph Smith. Remember what Peter preached in Acts 4 and verse 12. Peter told the Sanhedrin council, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name than Jesus by which we must be saved. You remember what Jesus taught us in John, the 14th chapter? Do you remember that, please? In John, the 14th chapter, what did Jesus say? In John 14 and in verse number 6, John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. I'm the way. The implication of that is I'm the only way. I am the way and the truth and the life. That is the one who gives real life, spiritual life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Notice how if we're going to make it to heaven at all, it's going to be through one person and one person only. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus the Christ. He is the way, the only way. He is the truth, the embodiment of God's truth. He is the source of real life, spiritual life. He is who we need. In fact, it reminds me of what the apostles acknowledged in John 6. Look at John 6 and verse 66. Remember how after Jesus preached that powerful sermon about being the bread of life and how if you want to live forever, you got to eat of him. You got to drink of him spiritually. You got to revolve your life around Jesus. You got to make him the center of your life. All in for Jesus. That's what he preached. And in John 6 and verse 66, it says, as a result of this, as a result of that preaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Notice how, and when you study this in the context, you see thousands. Thousands and thousands of people left Jesus. They left Jesus. They stopped walking with Jesus. Over 67 says, Jesus said to the 12, you not want to go away also, do you? Notice how the Lord doesn't compromise his message. He's not looking for numbers. He's looking for a commitment. And he says, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What are the apostles teaching us there? Where there the apostles are teaching us that leaving the Lord is foolish because we need him. 
We need everything he has to offer. We need his love. We need his kindness. We need his mercy. We need his forgiveness. We need him to cleanse us and do for us what nobody else can. We need him to wash away our sins, give us real life and eternity with God the Father. We need Jesus. Every person. There are 7 billion people on the planet right now. We talked about that. And every single one of them needs Jesus. Naaman had to discover that, hey, I don't like it, but I need God. God's the only way out of this. The same is true today, but let's close with this final point. Another thing Naaman discovered is in addition to realizing, hey, I need God, he also needed to trust and obey God. Again, upon hearing God's will and realizing his expectations were not going to be met, Naaman went away mad. He's furious. He's disappointed, but thankfully the text tells us that he has somebody there to talk some sense into him. You know, sometimes we need that, don't we? We need some folks to talk some sense into us. That's what he needed. Thankfully, he had a servant who helped him see how ridiculous it was not to obey these simple instructions from God. Even though it seems degrading to you, name it, go ahead and do it. What do you have to lose? We've come all the way out here. Just do what the prophet said. And so Naaman did it, and he was cured. He was cured only when he believed God. Only when he trusted God. Only when he obeyed God and did exactly what God said. Naaman had to humble himself and submit to God. And I think that's important we emphasize that because I don't know about you, but to me, it seems like we're living in a time where a lot of people kind of look down on that last point. A lot of religious people even. They kind of turn their nose up at that. They kind of turn their nose up at, at the need to, to be obedient to God. It seems like a lot of people have a negative view today of careful obedience to God. They're quick to shout things like, well, you know, we shouldn't be legalistic like the Pharisees. And we don't really need a whole lot of sermons about Bible authority and, and classes about Bible authority. It seems like a lot of folks today, even some members of the Lord's body, kind of have a negative view of preaching about obedience to God as though that's a big problem. And yet, what did Jesus preach? What did Jesus preach in Luke 6, 46? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Jesus preaching about authority there. Obey me. Otherwise, I'm not truly your Lord. What about John 14, 15? Where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. That's preaching about authority. Obey me. Your love for me is demonstrated in, in whether or not you do what I say. And since people want to bring up the Pharisees so much and how the Pharisees were these guys who were legalistic because they carefully obeyed God. Let's look at what Jesus said about that. Look at one more place in your Bible at Matthew 23, verse 23, please, because we need to clear that up just a little bit. And Matthew 23, verse 23 Jesus said to the Pharisees and the scribes, Matthew 23, 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's called them hypocrites here. Why? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done 
without what? Neglecting the others. Here is Jesus condemning the Pharisees because they carefully obeyed God's law. They wanted to pay attention to the details. Is that why he's condemning them? No, according to this text, he's condemning them because they didn't submit to God fully. They didn't do all God required. They didn't obey the Lord in all the ways he prescribed. That's what the Lord is teaching there. And Naaman discovered that when he went to Israel. Naaman discovered that he had to obey the will of God completely. If he was going to be cleansed physically, and we today have to obey the will of God completely, whether it makes sense to us or not, to be cleansed spiritually. we got to do it. So my final question to you is this. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you obeyed God? Have you done what God requires for you to be spiritually cleansed? If not, then I hope this. I hope that what Naaman discovered about God here will motivate you to do so. I hope that this morning you realize the severity of your spiritual condition, understand that only God can help you, and then do what he tells you to do. Obey Acts 2.38, repent, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins if you're not a Christian. Obey Mark 16, 16 and believe the gospel and be baptized so you, so you can be saved. If you are a Christian, you've been baptized for the remission of your sins, but you're not living right. You are wallowing in sin again. Obey 1 John 1 and verse 9. What John says as Christians, we need to confess our sins. Ask God to forgive us and trust that he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. Cleanse us completely. Obey the Lord and trust the Lord. And so if there's anyone here this morning who needs to experience the cleansing of Jesus through the waters of baptism for the first time, or if you need to experience God's cleansing power again because you're a Christian who's willing to repent of sin, come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing together. God is calling the